VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And it's the Friday VinePair podcast. Welcome back from vacation, Joanna. Thank you. Thank you. So, like, let's discuss the Azores. What's it like? So, the Azores are, it's a an island system of nine islands. Okay. Off of Portugal. But how far two off? Two and a half hour flight from Lisbon. So, wow. it's not on oh. the Iberian Peninsula. As Tim asked me earlier today, <laughs> um, it was a five-hour flight from New York. Okay, um, it's in the Atlantic Ocean, and uh, yeah, they're really, really beautiful. Um, we flew into São Miguel, which is the main island, um, one, okay. of, one of the bigger ones. But then we we stayed there for for a few nights, and then we flew to Pico, uh-huh. which is another island which has a um, big volcano on it. I think the one of the biggest. Um, in Europe, I think. Okay. Um, and they are known for their wine. Oh. Very cool. Yes. Um, and that's why we went there, um, because when the island was first inhabited back in the 15th century, um, they were trying to figure out what they could plant there because it was all volcanic rock. Mm-hmm. And they tried a number of different crops, and I guess some priest came along and brought the Verdello grape. And that they were able to cultivate that in the volcanic rock mm-hmm. and grow it in the rocks. Um, but they it's it's really unique because instead of having like trellises, they built volcanic rock walls around each okay. like vine, I guess, to wow. protect to protect them from the seawater. Um, wow. Yeah, seawater, I guess, because because it was like burning the leaves. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, so they were able to do this and it became like the biggest industry on the island for a really long time. Obviously it got ravaged by disease. Yeah. And then in the 1990s, they kind of revived winemaking on Pico and it's a a world heritage like UNESCO site. Oh, that's awesome. How many wineries are there? I don't actually know how many. I think, I think there are a handful. Um, But then otherwise in, in the Azores, like Portuguese wine is is big there too. How was the wine on this island? Really good. So really minerally acidic. So they they're also they're like protecting rare grape varieties. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't think I of the this. red, but we had Arinto, okay. which okay. which is popular in Portugal. Um, and gosh, I can't remember the other one. But yeah, so that's what they're trying to do. They're growing these grapes. Um, we went to the Azores Wine Company, and we mm. did a tasting, the Around the Volcano tasting, okay. which is the same grape, but grown in different places on the island to taste the like effects of the terroir That's dope. on the island. It was very, very cool. And then they also had some really beautiful wines made from their older vines. So... Um, that was great. I brought back some wine for us to try, Adam. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Keith. Very cool. <laughs> um, yeah, so it was like a really, really wonderful experience. Great, like adventuring and hiking and That's things, awesome. but beaches as well. I saw there are lots of cows. Lots of cows. <laughs> yes, my husband Evan was obsessed with the cows. He's a really good Instagram. <laughs> he is. Yeah, he was, I was like, really wow. into it. Evan is like, I mean, I'm just going to follow him. Yeah. Because <laughs> I saw the whole vacation. He's he's very, yeah, he was really good about Instagram. He's very Instagram. good. It was very Instagrammable place it's so so beautiful it's really cool not what i thought it would look like highly recommend it very Very, awesome very green i mean despite being 
like volcanic islands, yeah. but like very, very cool. And so to get to the islands, is it you fly to every island or, or yeah. are there ferries at all? There or? are ferries, but they're quite long. Yeah, so I can the, see that. Yeah, the flight from San Miguel to Pico was only 39 minutes or okay. something. But I think it would have been many hours to ferry yeah. there. So, but yeah, that's very awesome. easy to get to. Do you have to fly to Portugal first to be able to get to the Azores? Because no, feels actually, like you went like halfway. You went like pa- you know, well past the Azores to the yeah. Backtrack. No, no, we we were able. I think so. You used to have to. I think you right? used to have to. Um, there, the Azores airline like flies directly from New York to San Miguel, Ponta Delgada. Oh, cool. But then in 2019, I, I, this is part of the reason why we even like learned about the Azores because in 2019 Delta started flying direct mm-hmm. New York to Ponta Delgada and they covered it in the travel section. And so this travel Boom. writer we like a lot, like read the article and we were very compelled to go there. Very awesome. Mm-hmm. Cool. Very cool. Highly well, recommend. Welcome back Thank everyone. You. Go to the Azores. <laughs> uh, so, so this week for our Friday edition, chat about something that happened this week, which is that uh, officially now, American single malts are a category of whiskey in the United yes. States. Um, so I guess in terms of just our reactions to this category, have you guys had a lot of American single malts? Apparently, as you told me before we started joining the fastest growing whiskey category in the U.S., apparently. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So like, have you have either of you had a lot of American single malts? I have not. I definitely have. I don't think intentionally, but yes, I feel like, Zach, you're always talking about <laughs> American single malts. Yeah. I mean, I've been fascinated by this category for a number of years, in part for, you know, kind of uh, self-interested reasons in that I think it's a style of whiskey in general that I like, single malt, be it from Scotland or uh, Japan or, you know, the U.S. or all kinds of other places. And also partially because I, I find it this fascinating sort of almost counterpoint to the narrative in American whiskey that's so tied to bourbon because single right. malt production is very different, um, both in terms of the raw materials and I think in some ways the kind of desired effect. I think one thing that we've touched on a few times in the podcast uh, over the last couple of years is how, you know, even as bourbon production has moved beyond the sort of uh, Kentucky, Tennessee region to be allowed and practiced throughout the country, the style of bourbon that people are producing is largely pretty similar. I mean, they're they're right. very clearly tied to the longstanding tradition of bourbon production in the U.S., mm-hmm. which is fine. That's what people generally want when they want bourbon. But what's interesting to me about American single malt is it's always seemed like and continues to seem like this category wherein the use of malted barley as the base material and the sort of for lack of a better word, the sort of ethos of a lot of the people who have gotten interested in American single malt as producers has been much more about trying to express a sense of place through their distillate. And Mm -hmm. that's something that I find interesting, even if sometimes it's also a little, you know, can be a little heavy handed, um, or at least sometimes a little bit, uh, (laughs) you know, prompt an eye roll or two from me when it gets over the top. But I do think there's something interesting and exciting in that. But I also know that for producers in the category, getting this official designation of what an American single malt whiskey is, the sort of rules you have to follow to be able to label your bottles as such has been a big goal for a lot of producers because it will allow them to really, you know, kind of formalize the category. And I think mm-hmm. keep large producers who might've wanted to play fast and loose with that term um, from doing so. They'll have to follow the same rules about, you know, using hundred percent barley and all that kind of stuff to uh, enter the category. See, so what are the exact rules? So it has to be made from hundred percent malted barley, mm-hmm. mashed, distilled and matured in one distillery 
produced entirely in the U.S., distilled to a proof not exceeding 160, Mm -hmm. matured in oak casks not exceeding 700 liters, and bottled at a minimum of 40% ABV. Okay, so no age requirement. Not that I'm aware of. Interesting. I mean, I think you see that as being both a reflection of the relative um, new nature of this industry in America. You know, there just aren't a lot of longstanding American single malt producers, but also a reflection of the category itself, wherein, you know, we certainly think about single malt whiskey as being a category where there's lots of aging. And I think you will start to see some, you know, age statement bottles put out. Um, If they're not already out there, they probably are. But also a recognition that that's not the only potential avenue for this category to go down. And, And I think to come to something I was just saying before that's really interesting to me in this is that you're seeing people look at you know, using some different kinds of oak. I know um, Westland Distillery here in Seattle has heavily emphasized the use of a native kind of Pacific Northwest oak, Gariana, um, in their production. Also potentially using different malting techniques. There's uh, Colquigan, which is a distillery, I think, in... Oh God, I can't remember if it's there, they're in New Mexico or Arizona. I apologize. Um, but they malt their barley using mesquite. Um, which is obviously very authentic to where they're from and definitely imparts a sort of mesquite note to the uh, whiskey, which I find pretty uh, enjoyable, honestly, but obviously not something you would see in Scotland or even other parts of the U.S. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Zach, when you were saying before that some get heavy handed, what, what did you mean? Well, I think I don't know if I'd say heavy handed. I think there's a little bit of a like, you know, oh, God, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Let, let me prepare my 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 somewhat hot take here. So okay. I think that we've, as we have also covered on the podcast before, the term you know whether it's terroir or reflecting a sense of place, that concept I think does get a little bit overwrought. And sometimes when we're talking about things like distilling, where you know a fair bit of the characteristic of the final product might come from the barrel it's aged in, which again, depending on how you decide to barrel, it can be its own sense of place, as mentioned with uh, like the Pacific Northwest oak here or other oak species throughout the country or the world. But also that, you know, just distilling itself is a pretty intense process. And so, you know, it's not so much that the sense of place is coming from the raw materials necessarily. But I also think that it's just, you know, we still have so little idea for what that could mean for a category like American single malt because it's so new and this is such a big fucking country with so many different kinds of places within it, different kinds of climates and and uh, ecosystems in a lot of ways. And so what's cool about it is that, yes, there's this category of American single malt, but I think that if you see production continuing to grow, if you see distilleries throughout the country kind of really focusing on, to some extent, their somewhat local ecosystems for these, uh, some of the inputs, you know, you could have a a single malt industry and a category that has lots of distinct kind of regional differences. Mm -hmm. I mean, we see this in Scotland, but Scotland is much more homogenous climactically than the United States. Right. Mm. So I have a kind of like maybe stupid question, but as you're both talking, I was thinking about it. Like, why did it take so long? Like, why is it just, I mean, is the answer just bourbon, you know, and rye? Like you saw, you know, scotch obviously has been a whiskey that we've been very well aware of as a drinking culture for a, a very long time. Um, if you want to say, okay, well, yes, but not truly 
I think really in the 70s and 80s, people came into collecting scotch mm-hmm. and especially single malts. And that's when you sort of saw the single malt explosion where lots of people were like, hey, I'd rather buy the single malt than buy the blends, right? We we know yeah. in the, you know, 50s, 60s, et cetera, blends were huge. It's when Johnny Walker, came, you know, became really famous, Doors, et cetera, with, in the American consciousness. Mm-hmm. And then we started to recognize single malts and become fans of single malts and try to collect single malts. And you, you know, the, what is now Diageo bought up a bunch of them at mostly so they could make better Johnny Walker blue, but then they also, you know, they, they then also started selling those single malts and used LVMH owns some, all of them. Right. And Japan caught on pretty quickly and started making single malts. Taiwan is making single malts, right? There's other places. And I'm, I'm so curious why it feels like you'd, Maybe people, I mean, people probably were making them they even were in the 90s them. here, yeah. but why it took so long for this designation to happen and to push for it in the U.S. It's well, really curious. The, the, the simplest reason is actually that barley doesn't grow in the parts of the United States that are traditionally connected with distilling or it doesn't grow very mm. well and isn't grown very heavily. So if you think about barley doesn't really grow in the southeast. It's not a right. it's not a big crop in Kentucky or Tennessee. It's the reason why despite the people who founded the distilling industries in those country being from Scotland and Ireland, it's why corn very quickly became um, you know, first rye in particular and wheat to some extent in the Northeast, which both of which grew much better there than barley and then corn in the, you know, in Appalachia being the base grains. And so the barley production in the United States is centered in like, you know, Montana, the Dakotas, and then on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. And so there wasn't the same interest in, you know, those those areas have not supported, you know, big distilling industries until very recently when the national laws were liberalized to allow for craft distilling. Um, you know, that's still less than two decades ago. And so I think that's a big part of it. I think the category as a whole is actually very new um, on any kind of scale. And it's because of the change in the laws and the fact that for so long, American, um, you know, sort of American whiskey distilling was centered around corn, rye and wheat. And barley right. really didn't play a role. Barley, if it was used, was used for you know malt syrup or for beer, and that's all well and good, but it's not the highest use of barley, in my opinion. Interesting. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I guess so. We're working on a story about this right now, um, but I think it's interesting to kind of explore why, like, why this official designation isn't important, um, and why anyone should care about it, um, and like, kind of what it means for. The American whiskey market. Yeah. And I think that's the open question that that Adam expressed earlier. And I think it's, you know, the, the, the people who were pushing for this designation, like I said, I think their rationale was, you know, one part kind of consumer branding, frankly, to ensure that people, hopefully that people who are producing whiskeys in this style will use this term that will be, mm-hmm. you know, become more and more recognizable to whiskey drinkers as a way to differentiate. Because the problem is if you're producing before this, if you're producing a hundred percent malted barley whiskey, it was kind of unclear what you would call it American whiskey. Okay. Well that can get lumped in with a lot of other things, Um, you know, or something, you know, you can't really use the signifiers. You're not going to say, you know, my, you can't say something like my scotch style whiskey or something. There are trade agreements with the EU that would prohibit you from using the word scotch on a label. Um, (laughs) And so you kind of do quickly run out of ways to make it clear to the consumer what it is you produce without saying something like single malt, which is a term that is widely used throughout the whiskey world for this style of whiskey. And then, of course, American, which, you know, identifies its place of origin. 
And I think it's also as some of these distilleries as this category hopes to not just be a market force in the United States, but, you know, put its product in the global market. It's also important to have, you know, a term that's defended and defined at home. So you can theoretically over time, you know, kind of exert the same sort of right to that term as Scotland has or as Japan has or things like that. Mm. Right. So there's hope for more exports as a result of this. Yeah. I mean, I think at this point, again, I'm not in the industry, so I, I mean, I'm adjacent, obviously. I don't think production is sizable enough sure. for most of these distilleries to for it to be a, a pressing concern. But I know some of them are in overseas markets to some extent. And again, as we've seen with the global single malt industry and marketplace, people who love single malt are really, really getting off on trying single malts from around the world, yeah, the not world. just mm-hmm. from Scotland, not just from you know, Japan or, but, or Taiwan, but from, you know, India, from, uh, South America, et cetera, you know, it's a growing category and people are experimenting with it throughout the world. And I can imagine that given that there's a rich tradition of distilling here in the U S and some excellent barley production throughout the, you know, parts of the country that do produce barley, there's no reason to believe that American single malt can't be, you know, on par with those other great single malt whiskey producing countries. Do we have a region yet, Zach, in the country that's considered to be like one of the better producers of single malt or where there are more single malts being produced? That's a good question. I'm I'm going to expose my own biases here and say that the Pacific Northwest. I was gonna, no, I was going to say that as well. Yeah, though, I, mean, right? I, I hear a lot of from the Pacific Northwest for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think Colorado. That, yeah, right. I think, well, I think you have this sort of great untapped potential of the sort of mountain west where again a lot of barley is grown also mm-hmm. but but there you have not as much pop well you do have some obviously big you know cities but you don't have the same sort of density of population and i think some of the people that are producing some of these products out there i've seen a few things on you know like online but i haven't tried very many of them because i think it's hard for them to get out of their home states in some cases mm-hmm. they're pretty small production um, but i have heard you know, really good things. I actually think you see some really interesting um, barley product or sorry, you know, single malt production happening in um, the upper Midwest as well. The kind mm-hmm. of Great Lakes area, mm-hmm. um, in part because a lot of the grain from the, you know, Mountain West kind of heads that way naturally anyhow, uh, for a variety of reasons, mm-hmm. but also because you have a sort of not the same ability to produce the kinds of whiskeys that have traditionally dominated the American landscape, or at least you can, but it's not as connected as um, you know, the Northeast or, or Southeast are to, you know, rye and bourbon, uh, right. respectively. And, but I think that the, you know, the interesting thing is that, you know, obviously you don't have to grow barley locally to produce single malt. I mean, you know, you're buying, right. you know, most distilleries are producing or purchasing, you know, malted barley, which is obviously a processed cooked form of it. So it's not as if you have to grow it next door to be able to make it. Right. And again, like I said, one of the really interesting things about this category is the potential for different parts of the country to use different kinds of inputs that are regional, like the mesquite in the Southwest, for example. You can think of lots of other possibilities throughout the country to give a regional flair, a regional yeah, kind distinguish. of signature. Yeah. Exactly. Mm. And it doesn't rely on necessarily there being natural, you know, barley production close by. I mean, it is a a commodity crop for a reason. It travels pretty well. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting. Well, so we both have some single malt in front of us, American single malt. So, Zach, what do you have? So I actually have a bottle from um, another distillery here in Seattle that I don't give as much shine to normally. And that's just, you know, me being me. But this is Copperworks, uh, which is another one here in Seattle. And this is uh, actually their first ever uh, single malt release. So they're, they're release number one, uh, in case anyone cares, I have bottle number 314 out of 1005. And uh, this was actually produced a few years ago. So it's 
um, been, uh, you know, just kind of aging gracefully on my liquor cabinet. How about you guys? So we have Cedar Ridge um, American Single Malt Whiskey from Iowa, and it's called the Quintessential Signature Blend. Nice. Um, does it have an age statement? Adam? It does. It says batch six, ninety-two proof, product of Swisher, Ohio, forty-six percent. I mean, I, I don't think it needs to. I was just wondering. no, no, it doesn't. Um, Asian American oak and cask finished. Um, cool. All right. So, and we're of course drinking these out of Glencairn glasses because <laughs> that's what you do when you drink single malt whiskey. Uh, that's what I, I have. Almost too. got the small little plastic Dixie cups, though. I mean, look, if you <laughs> blinded me on this, I would think this was Scotch. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it would. I would think it was maybe a Highland. Yeah, Highland. Not. Yeah. Not. Not. Not a Lafroig. Yeah, you know. It's not yeah. very smoky. But you, I, you could on the nose. You could tell me this is scotch. I haven't put it on the palate yet, but on the nose, I could be like, yeah, I could see that this is scotch. Scotch or of or an Irish whiskey. Yeah. Because mm. there's lots of similarities. For sure. Smells good. Yeah, and I think an interesting thing for me about um, this one that I have from Copworks is, and, and it fits their own kind of history and narrative, that the guys who founded it were um, longtime craft brewers, and they were became more and more interested with the potential to sort of translate their experience brewing into making whiskey in particular. And obviously, you know, the first step in making whiskey is you make beer. Um, and so they, their whiskeys have always, to me, they have a slightly kind of, for lack of a better word, kind of a, a brewed quality to them. Like there's like a, an aroma where you get this sort of more, I don't know, the, the sort of maltiness in that more, the way we think about it with beer more than I think about it with whiskey sense to it. Uh, but it's very tasty. I'm enjoying it. Mm. Yeah, ours is nice. It's uh has like a lot of floral characters t- characteristics to it. There's honey, some um, wood, some wood for sure. Yeah, there's a nice burn that I think you sort of get with some single malt, some heat, some heat. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. What's the proof on yours? Uh, ninety two. Ninety two. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, this is one hundred four. So it's definitely got some burn. Yeah, but yeah, these are nice. I mean, I think it's a, it's an exciting category. It's cool to see that. It's happening. If you are a listener to the show and you have a, a American single malt that you're a fan of or a producer, hit us up at podcast at vinepair.com and let us know who that producer is. We love to try to check them out. Uh, and if you've had either the ones that we just tried, let us know as well. Um, and have a great weekend. Zach, Joanna, see you Monday. Talk to you Monday. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vine Pair podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington in Zach Chabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair podcast network. 
I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.